Hope everybody's having a good week. Hope everybody is uh, absent illness. Everybody feeling good tonight in the house? Amen. Okay, how many of you know somebody that's sick as a dog tonight? Look at that, all over the place. We've got a lot of people out. It's mind-boggling how many people uh, have been ill and are sick uh, tonight. And so we're praying for a lot of people. And uh, we'll be glad when the warmer weather comes back around and the sick bug goes away. Amen. Uh, but until then, we make do the best we can. God is good to us at Hillcrest, and we're thankful that you're here uh, tonight. How many of you have seen or at least aware of the TV reality show Survivor? Survivor. Well, I, I'm not addicted to Survivor. I've watched an episode a time or two. And you know, uh, these people... Uh, are gathered together, men and women, and they take them off to a, a kind of a remote place. And the goal is to be the lone survivor, the last man or the last woman standing. And, uh, you know, the way that you remain from one week to the next uh, is to kind of not only demonstrate some skill and some survival tactics, but there's a little bit of political wrangling that has to go on because you have to build alliances, and if people don't like you, bottom line is, at the end of every episode, they take a vote, and somebody's got to go. And so you want to f win friends and influence people and the like, and so there's, there are, there's skill, and there's also, uh, you know, politics that are involved. You don't want to get voted off. Well, several years ago, when they did uh, the Survivor show, in Tahiti, one of the contestants was actually a Baptist pastor from Louisiana. His name was John Raymond. I mean, the fact that you're, if, you, if they know you're a Baptist pastor, how long do you think you're going to last? You ain't going to last very long. Nobody wants a, a Bible thumper in the camp. But this guy wanted to do it as a witness. He wanted to be able to have a national platform and take his testimony and demonstrate it all over the country and all over the world. And the ironic thing is, truth be told, in that season, uh, Survivor Tahiti, John Raymond, pastor, was the first man voted off the island. He didn't make it. And you ask, well, why? Well, let me just say, it wasn't because of his lack of skills. This guy grew up hunting and fishing in Louisiana. And in his camp, they realized they didn't have a place to go to the bathroom. Well, this guy was a guy that dug the latrine. He knew how to do it. This was a guy who knew how to catch fish and hunt wildlife. He knew how to start a fire without matches. And so he ended up catching the food. He ended up being the guy that found the fresh water supply. I mean, it would seem to me that's the guy you want to keep around, right? But they didn't. They kicked him off. And uh, you know why they kicked him off. He was a man of God. And he carried a Bible with him. And the other people just did not feel comfortable around a guy, even though he was an outdoorsman, a naturalist. They didn't feel comfortable about him, even though he knew how to do everything right. And the bottom line is, he got voted off. You know why he got voted off? He didn't fit in with the group. He stood out. He was different, and because he stood up, stood out, stood apart, 
he became a moving target. Now, he didn't, here's the thing. He didn't survive survivor, but that man is a survivor in the journey of life. And that's the kind of person God wants every single one of us to be. He didn't survive survivor because he wouldn't compromise in an environment where compromise was the name of the game. And when we look at the story of the great flood that's captured here in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the first thing we tend to think of when we think of the flood is destruction, judgment, and that would be right. It's a story of a world gone totally corrupt. We looked at a passage last week that's kind of a transition passage. It sets up the story of Noah. And we saw that compromise was rampant throughout the whole world. The world had turned its back on God. And God's patience had reached its limit. Now let's pick up in Genesis chapter 6 verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, <clears throat> for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I'm not sure that you and I here in the 21st century can grasp completely just how terrible a shape the world was in at this particular time. We think the world is bad now, really is nothing compared to what life was like on the earth. There just weren't as many people back then. Demonic influence, rampant. Every person, the Bible says, every person except for a relative handful contained in one family had turned away from God. It was absolute anarchy. Everybody did what was right according to what he or she saw fit. And the Bible says in the passage we looked at last week that the thoughts and the imaginations of man's heart was only evil all the time. I just think that's one of the most important phrases in the Bible. Only evil all the time. And it would be difficult to say that in our world today, even though from the standpoint of the human heart, that's how God sees every person who's lost in sin. And finally, God came to the point where he simply said, enough is enough, and I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And he makes a decision to judge the world. But here's the thing. That tends to be what we think of when we think about the great flood. The great flood comes because of wickedness, compromise, and corruption that is absolutely rampant on the earth where the entire world, except for about that many people in the Noah family, had turned away from God. Destruction is coming. But the flood episode is also one of survival. Because there was one man, the Bible says, who found what? Noah found what? Grace, favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's a glimmer of hope. There's a ray of sunlight in what is an otherwise very foreboding background. And so the story is also one of survival. And it's all about Noah. The question we want to attack tonight is what does it take 
to be a survivor in a world of corruption and compromise. I think there's a very practical story. This is not in here just to teach us a history lesson of something that happened a few thousand years ago. It's in there to provide a model for us as we ourselves live in a world of decadence and a world of depravity and a world of corruption ourselves. How are we to be spiritual survivors in a chaotic world? Well, let's look at Noah's life for a few minutes tonight, see if we can take away some helpful hints. First of all, I want you to notice that to be a spiritual survivor means, first of all, you have to be right with God. That's where survival in a lost world begins, really with being saved. You have to know that you've been redeemed. You have to know that you are right, just, righteous, and accepted by God. That's where surviving in a lost, depraved, fallen world begins. Because apart from a right relationship with God, there is no ultimate survival. The only thing we have to look forward to is destruction. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, be destroyed. That's what the world means. Utter, absolute, and complete ruin. And that's not what God wants. But apart from a right relationship with God, that's what we have a coming. The same kind of judgment, the same kind of destruction. And apart from a right relationship with God, there is no escape. There is no ark. There is no deliverance. We learn in verse 9 here that there is one key to Noah's survival in a world doomed to destruction. And it's this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, notice the language there is very specific. Noah was what kind of man? A righteous man. We're very tempted oftentimes in our language to substitute the word good for the word righteous. But I want you to notice the Bible does not say Noah was a good man, for there is a difference. We often talk, oh, he's such a good man. She's such a good person. But don't substitute the word good for the word righteous. I think Noah was a good man. But any goodness in his life came because of his right standing with God, and it was not goodness inherent in his own personal character, which was flawed because that was a man like us who was born in a condition of sin. And God chooses Noah. He chose to save him from the coming flood, but not because he was a good man. The Bible says he was a righteous man, a just man, and that has everything to do with his right standing with God. He was right before God, and he was right with God. On what basis? Wasn't because of his goodness that Noah was right with God. It wasn't because of his lifestyle that he was right with God. Noah was right with God, not because of who he was and not because of how he lived. Noah was right with God in the same way that I'm right with God, in the same way that most of you, many of you, are right with God. You are right with God, not based on who you are or not based on what you do. You are right with God because of what you believe. A person is righteous in the eyes of God because that person responds to the grace of God 
with faith. So Noah was a righteous man, not because he did good things. Noah did good things because he was a righteous man. Does that make sense? His salvation was a result not of what he did or who he was, but because of what he believed. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 7. This is from the famous chapter in Hebrews 11 that has everything to do with what? Faith, hall of fame of faith, roll call of faith, whatever you want to call it colloquially. But in Hebrews eleven seven, 7, we find Noah there. So we know Noah was a person of faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became, watch this, an heir of the righteousness that what? Say it out loud. Comes by faith. There you go. So I'm a righteous person because of what I believe about God, of where I've settled my life concerning who God is and what God has done for me in Christ. This is, for example, what the Bible says consistently about Abraham. When we finish this study of Noah, we'll go into a study of Abraham. And the Bible's going to say the same thing about Abraham, the father of Israel. It says about Noah, Abraham what? Believed God. Abraham faithed in God. In English, we don't have a verb for faith. English, uh, in English, faith is only a noun, right? It's, a, it's an object or a subject. But in Greek and in Hebrew, it's a verb. And so we don't say Bob Aaron faithed in Jesus because that's not proper English. So we have to find a substitute word. And what's the closest word to faith to use as a verb? Bob Aaron believed in Jesus. And so in the verbal form, that's all over the gospel of John. Whosoever believes in him should not perish. Uh, the Philippian jailer believed in the gospel, so forth and so on. And that's what it says about Abraham. Abraham believed God. But what it really says is Abraham faithed God. And it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. There you go. I deposit my trust in the Lord. God responds by giving me proper and eternal standing in his holy presence. And that comes through the exercise of faith. Okay? Does that make sense? So, righteousness always precedes goodness for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not righteous because you're good. You do good because God has declared you righteous. And that righteousness comes by faith. So, this is why we got to be saved. And it's also why God is the one that has to do the saving. Nobody can save themselves. You're not that good enough. We don't have anything to offer God that could possibly deserve God accepting us into the presence of his holiness. And the Bible's clear about that. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that does good. No, not one. And then the passage we looked at last week, every inclination of a man's heart was only evil all the time. So this is the foundational fundamental reason that Noah survived the judgment. 
He survived the judgment because he was a righteous man, and he was a righteous man because he was a man of faith. And I think he'd seen that. That was something that didn't just fall into his lap. He'd seen it modeled before him. Anybody know who the father of Noah was? Lamech, who was a godly man. The father of Lamech, the grandfather of Noah. Anybody can impress the pastor tonight? Who was that? I give you a hint. Oldest man that ever lived. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. He lived to be about 18 million years old or something like that. Lived a long time. Godly man. Methuselah's father. Noah's great-grandfather. Anybody know who that was? You get a box of Snickers bars tonight. Tell me who that is. Enoch, very good. Give it to the singer tonight, the musician. Okay, I'll bring you Snickers next week. Do you eat Snickers? You're obviously saved. Amen. (laughs) So here's the thing. You know, Enoch was translated into the presence of the Lord. He didn't even die. So Noah's got this great godly heritage coming down, right? That's where he learned it. But... It wasn't automatic. He had to make faith his own, and that's what he did. So God responds with grace to Noah. Noah responds to God's grace with faith. God declares him righteous, fit for the kingdom of God, fit for heaven, fit for service to a holy God in a world gone nuts. This is what it means to be saved. Love Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. (coughs) So when it comes to the makings of a survivor in a corrupt world, you got to start right here. Because if you miss this right here, guess what you miss? You miss the boat. You, You don't make it on the ark. The only way to be delivered from the judgment that is to come is to get in the ark of safety. And from a spiritual perspective, the only way in the ark of safety is through the vehicle of faith. You must be what? Born again. All right? Everybody with me? So, I'm right with God. Survival skill number one. Two, I have integrity with others. So this, is, this becomes from vertical to horizontal. Now we learn about Noah's relationship uh, with other people and kind of how other people saw him and how he related to other people. But I have integrity with others. And I think this is what the Bible means when it says again in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, and that describes his vertical relationship with God. But then what does it say next? Noah was a righteous man, and what's the next word? blameless in his generation. Now we go horizontal. This is how he's uh, perceived by others or how we should perceive him as we read about him. In other words, you know, he, he may have been on the receiving end of accusatory criticism, but none of it stuck. And that's the thing. You can't stop people from firing arrows at you or throwing darts at you. You can't stop that from happening. What you can control is whether or not that stuff sticks to you or whether it just bounces right off, okay? 
And so Noah was a righteous man, but Noah was also a blameless man. If you're using, anybody got a King James Bible in here tonight? It doesn't say, you know, what does it say? Noah was what kind of man? Perfect. That's right. Not the best translation. Because, well, the word really means whole. When we hear the word perfect, we think, man, the guy never messed up. Do you think Noah really never messed up? No, of course he did. So he wasn't perfect in the sense that God is perfect. But he was perfect in the sense of being whole. When the Bible says be perfect as uh, your heavenly father is perfect, it's not talking about never making a mistake or never falling into sin or never committing a sin because that's not possible. We're fallen and we're going to make mistakes. The idea there is whole, be complete. Sometimes the word mature is substituted there. The word in the Greek New Testament is talaios. It has this idea of wholeness, but not, not perfection as we know it. The ESV uses the word blameless, and I think that's a good translation as well. But this is who Noah was. He was a whole person, a mature person, biblically speaking, inside and, and out. In other words, he hadn't let the outside world corrupt his character. He was different in the world, right? Um, he was in the world, but the world was not in him. Some of y'all have gotten into these discussions in small groups before. Be in the world, but not of the world. And that is very biblical. You know, it's, you, know you and I are in a sinful world where boats in the water. What we have to guard against is leaks where the water gets in the boat, Okay. And that was Noah. The water wasn't getting in his ship. And so he was considered blameless. And so here we have this subtle shift. Righteous in the eyes of God, blameless in terms of his conduct uh, before other people. And that's what enabled him to stand out. See, he had the same thing going on that Louisiana preacher did on the island of Tahiti. Radically different among all of these other people to the point where, man, oh, man. And if you, if you live that way, if you're committed to the word of God and you legitimately do what Jesus says and abide in him, walk in the spirit of God. I'm telling you, it's going to rub off. The spirit of God's going to control your life and the world's going to be walking like this and you're going to be going the other way. And that'll cause you to stand out and you and I have to learn to be okay with that because remember, this isn't home for us. We're supposed to be different. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're living in a strange alien and foreign land. And that should show. I was uh, pastoring in Missouri several years ago in Kennecut Camp, which is, I think, the greatest Christian camp for kids in America, it was in Branson and still is. Seth has worked there the last two summers. Branson, Missouri. And they had chapel once a week, and occasionally we'd go over and they'd let all of us pastors come over and take part in the chapel because they'd bring all these great speakers in. One of them was Tommy Nelson, who pastors the Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas. And I remember being in the chapel service and him telling a story about the time that he went to his local uh, blockbuster movie rental outlet. How many of you remember those days? Oh, they're gone. You just stream movies right in your house. Now you don't have to go to the movie store anymore, but yet you used to have to go rent them. And he was telling us about the time that he went 
He picked up a movie, uh, checked it out. He went in there all the time. He was developing a relationship with the young man who was just as lost spiritually as a goose in a snowstorm. And they knew one another by name. And the kid knew this was the pastor of the Bible church down the road, knew him by name, and handed him his movie, exchanged the money. Dr. Nelson left to go home. When he got home, he opened up the movie to put it in VHS cassette. Can I have an amen tonight? Old school. And uh, we still have them. Everything in my house that's Disney is on video cassette. And I need to get those babies converted somehow, although I think that's against the law. I didn't say that in church tonight, did I? I haven't got them yet on the black market. Uh, but it's all still VHS, so I still have to keep a VHS in the house. Anyway, he pops it open, pulls it out, and then notices the sticker on the front, and he notices that's not the movie I wanted. So he picked up the case and looked at it. That's the movie. But what was inside didn't match what was on the outside of the case. It was the wrong movie inside the case. An adult movie. Now, you remember those days going to the movie store. The first thing that clerk does is open up the package to make sure that the right movie's inside. And so he did and closed it and handed it back on purpose because he knew who that guy was. And Tommy Nelson knew that he had checked it out and sent it home and he knew there is no way I can keep this overnight. Because that young man will make an assumption and my witness will be flushed down the toilet with him. So he put his coat back on, told his wife, I'll be right back, beats it back down, praying the whole time, Lord, let that guy still be there. I don't want to give this back to another. I want to give it back to the guy that gave it to me because he's putting me to the test. And sure enough, there the guy was. And Dr. Nelson beat his way right over there. And no sooner than he handed him that deal, the guy just looked at him and said, well, Dr. Nelson, did you have the wrong movie in that case? And Dr. Nelson said, I, I could have just grabbed him by the throat and in Christian love choked him to death. But at least he knew that I was not going to compromise my integrity. See, that's what it means to be blameless. You know, when you get home and you figured out you should have got a dollar twenty-nine back, and the clerk gave you twenty-one twenty-nine back, and you turn around and go back and hand that change to that clerk and say, "You gave me too much change back, and I drove fifteen minutes back here to give it to you because it's the right thing to." That's a blameless testimony. I mean, can you imagine the damage done to that preacher's testimony if he hadn't done personal credibility gone? I'm telling you, one of the great tests of survival when the world goes nuts is a blameless life of personal integrity that's lived obviously for others to see. This was what Paul prayed for to the Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians 2 and 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be what? Blameless. 
and innocent. See, that's Paul's way of telling the church at Philippi, man, this, this corrupt world around you is watching. They're watching, y'all. They're watching to see how you live together, and they're watching to see how you grow together, and they're watching to see how you solve problems together. And it needs to be done, this life together as people, so that you communicate that you're blameless. Children of God, without blemish. That's, a, that's the language of sacrifice. What kind of animal sacrifice were Jews supposed to bring it to the temple? Perf, the perfect, well, that's the best. When the Bible says without blemish, that was the kind of sacrifice. Don't be bringing me a three-legged calf in here. You know, don't be bringing me one that's got, you know, uh, disease or that walks with a lamp or that won't bring as much at market. No, bring the ones without blemish. Because, and Paul says, you need to be that way, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Well, that's Noah. Faultless, blameless, uncorrupted in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Shining like a light in the world. So this is what it means to stand up for God and to be willing to stand alone for God. Walk to the beat of a different drummer. Walk out of step with the rest of the world. That was true of Noah. And you know why? Why was Noah that kind of man? Well, the Bible says again in verse 9, there at the end, Noah walked with God. See that? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, period. Next sentence. Noah, what? Walked with God. That's why. Man, you walk with God, you're going to walk blameless before others. The key is to consistently walk in communion with the Lord. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And I'm not sure a greater thing could have been said of Noah. By the way, that language, Noah walked with God, is exactly the same biblical language back in Genesis chapter 5 that's applied to his grandfather, eunuch. Uh, uh, Enoch, not eunuch. <laughs> he wouldn't have been his grandfather if he'd been a eunuch. Somebody say amen. Enoch, <laughs> eunuch. Let's bow in prayer. We're done tonight. No, that's the same language applied to Enoch. Enoch walked with God. So it's part of their family heritage of faith. <clears throat> And that's what it means. What does it mean to walk with God? Constant communion with the Lord. You read the Bible. You pray. It's not rocket science. Stuff we've talked about for decades, generations in the church. It's the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, walking with the Lord. Spiritual disciplines. Church. Corporate worship. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. All of those things that we do as a people constantly and together. When you do that, you walk in step with God. You never get ahead of God. You never lag behind God. You walk with God. He's a part of every part of your life. So it's a beautiful picture of intimacy when we talk about walking with the Lord. It's what Adam did before he fell. He walked in the garden with God. And that's the way we're supposed to live as well. If you've ever taken a walk with someone, um, the only way to enjoy a together walk is to walk 
together at the same pace. Now, Judy and I try to walk together occasionally, but her definition of walking and my definition of walking are not the same. Judy walks like this. And I kind of walk like this, you know. It's like, where are you going? Slow down. My girls like to watch these English period pieces on PBS. Jane Austen stuff. Victoria. Downton Abbey. And somebody say amen in the back tonight. I'm speaking the language. Now I know what to do next time I can't be here on a Wednesday night. We'll have an episode of Downton Abbey. You ever notice how often those people are going out in these beautiful gardens strolling? It's in every one of them. It's like, don't these people have anything better to do than to spend all this time outside walking? Well, they're rich. Of course not. They've got all the time in the world. But they're just out there walking and they've got their canes and their parasols and they're walking. And what are they doing as they walk? They're talking together. I can't talk to Judy when we're walking because to do that, I would have to catch my breath. She goes too fast. No, you slow down and walk together so that there can be conversation. That's a meaningful, there's a difference between a meaningful stroll where fellowship and relationship is built and power walking. Two different purposes, two different things. And learning to walk with the Lord is the secret to a life of integrity. It's what enabled Noah to live blamelessly and to become, as Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, a preacher of righteousness, which is what Noah did for 100 years while he was building the ark. He was hanging down, slapping pitch, preaching the gospel while people laughed at him for 100 years. Okay, everybody tracking with me? So I'm right with God, survival skill number one. I have integrity with others because I walk with God, survival skill number two, in a corrupt world. And then number three, I obey, even when it seems ridiculous. Now, this is probably the most familiar thing about the Noah narrative. Because Noah is going to have to do the ridiculous in order to maintain his faith relationship with God. Now, he's not going to lose his salvation, but for him to walk in harmony with God and to live consistently obediently to God, God's going to tell him to do something that makes no sense whatsoever. And this is where we're notified about Noah's absolute commitment to obeying God no matter what it cost him. Verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Noah lived blamelessly because he walked with the Lord. And Noah obeyed the word of the Lord. That's another secret to his success. And that's something else that made him stand out in a world of also-rans. He just did what the Lord told him to do. And what was it? God told him to do, no big deal, just build a big old boat the size of one and a half football fields. And how close were they to a major body of water? 500 miles. There wasn't any water anywhere. 
Now, best we can tell, rain had never fallen on the earth up to this point. God watered the earth through mists, vapors, underground springs. So there's no indication the first raindrop had ever fallen. And so this command to build this ark that comes here is rather a remarkable command. Look at it beginning in verse 13, or 14 rather. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. Length of the ark, 300 cubits. Breadth, 50 cubits. Height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Cubit is, of course, a distance between uh, an average man's elbow and the tip of his middle finger. So you can do the math. Um, verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark with your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you they shall be male and female. And then verse 22, Noah did this. He did all <clears throat> that God commanded him to do. And what an amazing story. Noah and his family worked on that ark for over 100 years. And it was an incredible job. They couldn't order the lumber from Home Depot or Lowe's. They had to go out and cultivate it. I mean, they not only had to build it, they had to prepare the wood for the, uh, themselves. They had to harvest the wood, split the wood. Then they constructed the ship. How many power tools do you think they had? Circle saw, cordless drills. They have any of that stuff? None of it. So they covered the ark with pitch inside and out, waterproof it. I would imagine, I mean, 100 years of that mess. He smelled like tar the rest of his life. He never did get that stuff off of him. And I don't think there's any doubt that in the eyes of the people of his day, they considered Noah the biggest fool that ever lived. He'd never seen rain. Nobody ever knew what that was. There's no major body of water anywhere around. And yet Noah does everything God, and all he had was the word of God. He just had what God told him to do. God never told him what the end game was going to be. This stage of the game, he doesn't know how long he's going to be on the ark. He didn't know what life on the ark is going to be like. All he knew is that he was to gather the animals after he'd build the ark, assemble his family, and go in. No word about what happened later. No word about how they would come out. No promise that they would come out or through it. He didn't know how the story was going to end. The only way to survive in a world where judgment is coming is to do what that man did and obey God to the penny, even when it seems ridiculous. You willing to do that? If Noah had been a contestant on the Survivor Series, he'd have gotten voted off the island. But I'm telling you, it would be because he wouldn't have fit in he was a different contestant. And yet, 
when it was all said and done, when everything got put back in the box after it was all said and done, he was the only, he and his family were the only ones who lived to see it another day and to tell another story. And that happened because Noah was wise enough to gather into his life the makings of a survivor. He was right with God, blameless before others, and obedient to the word of God, even when it seemed ridiculous. God help us all to live with that kind of integrity that God may declare us true and lasting survivors.